The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Ask him. Ask him what? The estate was purchased from his uncle. Oh, was it now? Yes, it was, for the price at that time. Yes, it was. Yes. For the price of 95,000 rubles, of which my father paid out 70, leaving a debt outstanding of 25. Are you following this? Because this estate could not have been bought had I not renounced my share, A, of my inheritance in favor of my sister, whom I dearly loved. And additionally, and additionally, had I not toiled like an ox, which I have done, working here for ten years to discharge the remaining debt, which I have done... I'm sorry that I brought it up. ...and cleared the estate, which is clear and free, thanks to me. Thanks to my efforts, and here you come in here and propose throwing me out into the snow. I don't understand what you're trying to accomplish. I have managed this estate for 25 years. I have slaved and sent you money like the good steward. And not once during that time have you thought to think of the man who worked for you. Not once. For 25 years, you have sent me the magnificent sum of 500 rubles a year. 500 rubles a year! And not once have you thought to increase it. Ivan Petrovich. 25 years! Ivan Petrovich, I'm not a practical man. I mean, you could have raised at any time you chose. I see. I should have stolen And now you despise me because I'm not a thief. I should have stolen and I wouldn't be a pauper now. Jean. 25 years, I've lived like a mouse in the wall. My mother and I. Our thoughts and feelings were toward you alone. We talked by day of your work, of our pride in you. We uttered your name in awe. Our nights were spent reading your periodicals, your publications, which now fill me with disgust. And you don't, please, I beg you. I don't understand what you think. You want. You were a magic being to us, and we knew your words by heart. My eyes are open now. You wrote about art. You know nothing about art. You have no soul. You are a philistine, a fraud, a swine who feeds upon the leavings of his betters. You, you... Make him, make him stop. You built us! Ivan Petrovich, I insist you stop. Do you hear me? No, I will not Stop! No, I'm not done. I'm not finished yet. You've ruined my life. I've lost the best years of my life for you, you assassin, you thief. I've... You've ruined my life. What is it you think you want? How can you speak to me like that? What right do you have? Nothing. You're nothing. You want the estate? It's yours? Take it. Take it. I've no need of it. Stand this hell anymore. Do you hear me? I can't bear it. I'm leaving. My life is ruined. My life is a waste. I've ruined it. Talent, intelligence, courage. I could have been a Schopenhauer. I could have been a new Dostoevsky. I could have designed a new philosopher. Oh, my God, what am I saying? I'm losing my mind. Mama, Mama, help me, help me. I'm in pain, Mama! Do as Alexandre tells you. Mama. Oh, what am I to do? Tell me, tell me. All right, then. I know what I'll do.
you think you'll forget me. Hmm. That's David Warner as Vanya in the play of that name, Uncle Vanya, by Anton Chekhov, adapted by David Mamet. It's a version you can find online. It has Ian Holm and Rebecca Pigeon and Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. It's very good. That's an explosive scene. We're getting close to the climax of the play. We will talk about how the play gets there. We'll talk about that, plus life and literature and a letter from a listener today on the History of of literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast, this December version of the History of Literature. Whoa! It's almost time for that, isn't it? But not quite time. I am in a full-blown Christmas mood this year. I don't know why, except that I'm in a full-blown Christmas mood every year. Why not? It's my favorite holiday. I love the lights. I love the traditions. I love being with family. I love the nostalgia. And I love the hope. But we'll hold off on the music just now. We are still one week away. For some of you, that means your Advent calendar. You've got that rolling which for me means reading one Dubliner story per day so I can cap things off with my annual reading of the dead on Christmas Eve. We did a whole December on that a few years ago. It's still in the archives if you'd like to take a look or a listen, I guess. It was a time to read Joyce. Get it? A time to read Joyce? I've told you that I hate puns, but Joyce loved them so much that I have to make an exception for him. He came up with young and easily Freudened, which is pretty good. I'd say young being J-U-N-G, young and easily Freudened. Not bad, Mr. Joyce. Okay, anyway, this year is not about Joyce here on the podcast. It's about Chekhov. We are in the middle of the four major plays. We looked at the seagull last week, and next week on Christmas Eve, we'll look at Three Sisters. And on New Year's Eve, the following week, we'll look at The Cherry Orchard. What can be better than Chekhov for those holidays? Because even though I'm excited for Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve too, maybe to a lesser extent, I'm also filled with melancholy, and that's a big part of the appeal of Chekhov for me. I first started feeling melancholy. I don't know. I could probably find moments when I was a child. But it was really in my late teens and early 20s when I started to appreciate melancholy, when the nostalgia set in, even though that felt a little ridiculous, like I was too young to feel so old, so middle-aged. Luckily, I also felt young at times, and excited, and free, and strong, and beautiful, and surrounded by people of promise, and I say I was lucky because that's a part of life too, and I'm glad that I didn't miss it. I wasn't too gloomy to feel young. Okay, let's start talking about Vanya, this play, but we have to do a couple things first, don't we? We have to keep the lights on here at the Jack Wilson studio, so let's take a break, a quick break, and then a listener email, and then come back with the melancholy miracle, Uncle Vanya. Next year all our troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery 
perfect for the whole family. Join the cat in the hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Christmas, make the Yuletide gay. Next year all our troubles will be miles away. Our troubles will be miles away. Thank you, Ella. Okay, the email is from Elizabeth, and it has a nice twist to it. There's a neat little surprise in this one. Subject, romance novels. Dear Jack, I wrote earlier this year expressing my appreciation of your lovely show, and you actually read my letter on the air. I was so surprised to hear my words spoken out loud, it was quite unexpected. But then again, these pleasant surprises are one of the reasons why I enjoy your podcast so much. As I mentioned to you in my earlier email... I do not read much anymore, and until I started listening, I had truly forgotten how much I used to read. I don't know how I managed it, but somehow by the age of 22, when I had my first child and stopped having time, I read roughly 80% of the books you discuss. One of the many gifts you have given me is the rediscovery of what was obviously a pretty important part of my youth. I am writing to you this time because I had another surprise last night when I tuned into your podcast on romance novels. First off, I commend you for taking on this topic. Only a brave man ventures so boldly into this part of the female psyche. I enjoyed the history as well, and although I know these books are popular, I truly had no idea. But what really knocked my socks off was when you started talking about Jennifer Cruzy. She was my next-door neighbor for around 10 years in the 80s and 90s. When I first met her, she was a high school teacher. She told me about her ambition to be a published author, and although I admired her gumption, I really thought it was a bit of a pipe dream. At the time, she was a single mom, working full-time, and pursuing her PhD. How much can one person accomplish? I just love it when I'm wrong that way. Shortly thereafter, she was published and written up in the local newspaper. I remember asking her what her book was about, and when she said romance, I said, Oh, my four daughters, aged 10 and 17, love romance. I did not mention, although it was strongly implied, that I had read my share of romance in my teens and personally felt that I had outgrown the genre. When she replied that she was not sure my kids were old enough for her book, I was naturally curious, so I overcame my personal snobbery and bought it. It was a truly refreshing read. Her heroine was smart, human, and very funny, just like she is. Over the years, 
I've read at least five of her books and enjoyed every single one. Her novels make a legitimate effort to fight some of the negative stereotypes of the genre, and I think that is very important. For the female readers in my family, she has become the go-to author for when we are depressed or stressed. The election was two days ago. As yet, it is unresolved. It's the perfect time for a Jennifer Cruzy novel. On a personal note, my daughters and I all benefited from having a next-door neighbor who showed us by example the importance of strength, perseverance, and belief in oneself. I do not want to disparage hugely popular authors like Danielle Steele or Jackie Collins, but in my opinion, they can't shake a stick at the quality romance novels written by my old neighbor, Jennifer Cruzy. Enjoy the coffee, Jack. Elizabeth. Well... Elizabeth, wow. Thank you for sharing that. I was delighted to find the Jennifer Cruzy essay about romance novels when I was putting together that episode. I thought the essay was both smart and hilarious, and I'm glad to hear that she is as neighborly as she seems in print. A great neighbor. That's an underrated skill or benefit in life. We get we get online... And we become whoever, monsters, sometimes feverish, angry, irritated, dumb, dumb things down online. And some of us are like that in person, too, angry, bitter, selfish. But there's something about having a good neighbor that's decent and pleasant and smart and watchful. I had neighbors when I was living in Virginia. Our politics could not have been more different. Let me say this. My next-door neighbor was very strongly political on one side of the aisle, and she knew that her across-the-street neighbor, our across-the-street neighbor, was very strongly political on the other side of the aisle. It doesn't matter who was who, who was on which side for the purposes of this story. We lived in a cul-de-sac, and one night, a car came down the cul-de-sac, roaring down our quiet little street, some drunk, probably, or some thief trying to evade the law and they didn't realize they had turned into a blind alley and so they swerved around the circle and they hit a car that was parked in the circle my neighbor's car this was about three in the morning and some lights came on everyone heard the sound and the car peeled out and fled the cul-de-sac and the neighbor the across the street neighbor let's call him glenn jumped into his truck and drove after the guy, came running out of the house in his underwear, jumped into his truck and drove after the guy and got his license plate. And my next-door neighbor, whose car had been hit, told me the story. I had slept through it all, of course. Hey, I'm a good neighbor in other ways, hopefully. (laughs) Not chasing down crooks in my underwear, but I'm a good listener, I guess. She told me the story. And she said, Glenn was the hero, (laughs) the neighborhood hero. She was thrilled, amazed, and thrilled. And in fact, everyone on the street would get together to have block parties and generally looked out for one another. And the politics, everyone knew everyone was all over the place on the political map, but the politics were set aside. And it was just a good feeling to feel like the people around you are Decent folks. Who knows how we'd have been had we encountered each other at work. Online, we'd have probably been screaming at each other like idiots. 
but for the in-person context, we could smile and wave and ask for recommendations for a good dentist and and so on, because that's the side worth presenting in the neighborhood. We're not all up in each other's business, but friendly, neighborly. Jennifer Cruzy sounds like that, plus a little more. That plus kind of a, a model, a role model, a person you feel lucky to know. So thank you, Elizabeth, for sharing that good news and for your kind words about the show. Now, we can't have everything be sunshine and light, not even at Christmas time, or maybe it's because it's Christmas, because I'm rewarding myself with my personal treat, which is the deep dive into Chekhov. We will have the story of Uncle Vanya after this. Christmas time is here Happiness and cheer Fun for all That children call Their favorite time of year Snowflakes in the air Carols everywhere Olden times and ancient rhymes So when I was a young person making my way in the world, I could kind of understand Chekhov. The seedlings were there, but I was also naive. I hadn't yet ripened, you might say. And once in a while, an encounter with an older person would make that clear to me. Once I remember being visited, this was when I was studying abroad and I was 20 in Italy. The world was our oyster for our 20-year-old selves. We were young and strong and good-looking and would not trade places with anyone in the world. Everything was potential. Everything was possible. And it felt like there was no better place to be. And a guy came to visit, an older guy, the program director or something, and he was giving us kind of a pep talk, just checking in, and he said, as you get older, you start looking for blocks of time. You want blocks of time to focus on your work. For him, that was scholarship. That was the point of view he was coming from. And I was thinking, yes, I can see that. I could see getting to that point in my life. I had all the time in the world. I had too much time. I'd get bored. I wouldn't know what to do with myself sometimes. There was so much time and and too many ways to waste it. And yet I could see that when I was older, once I got married and had a job and had kids and had all these demands on my time, I might feel the way that this guy did. I might miss the days of waking up and having a solid block, hours and hours of nothing to do. One more story to build up to Vanya. I was young, in my 20s, I guess, and I was staying at a cottage on a lake. Again, there were about six young people, a whole group of us, and a couple of grown-ups, people from an older generation. We were all staying at this place for about a week, and the young people were having fun, water skiing and swimming and drinking and eating and staying up late and playing cards and doing all this young people stuff. 22. 23 years old. And the older people did their thing too, a little calmer. And one day I went out by the lake shore and sat in the shade of a tree and I had a book of poetry. And this woman in her 40s, maybe early 50s, said, 
Oh, I was wondering who was reading that. It's you. How is that book? And the title of the book was a collection of poetry, and it was called Time and Money. And she said, the older I get, the more I realize how important those two things are. There's really nothing that affects me more. I hadn't thought of it that way. Time and money. To me, they were just two words among a few dozen candidates. If you asked me at that age, what, what are the two most important words for a grown-up? I might say, well, love and death or sex, friendship. I might have said success. I might have said art, guilt, I don't know, time and money. Those were, those were all in that category too, but guilt would be in there and fear and loyalty or intelligence, intellectual pursuits, fulfillment, happiness. And as I've grown older, I've thought about that, that she said that time and money, the two most important, nothing affects her more. Why were those so important to her? Why not motherhood? Why not freedom? Why not food, clothing, shelter? Of course, a lot of these concepts overlap. Money is a kind of freedom, and time is too. And success overlaps with money and so on. But time and money, ever since that conversation, I recognize moments where time and money stand out as essential to a life. When someone is analyzing their life, and I think there it is again, they're talking about time, or there it is. It's all because of money. They are essential to a life, to our understanding of who we are and how we got there. Vanya is a play about time and money. It's a play about jealousy and resentment. It's a play about self-abnegation and about being in love with the wrong person. And it's about beauty and youth. And it's about aging. Maybe more than anything, it's about reaching a point in your life where you look back and look ahead, and the overwhelming feeling is that you have misspent your past, that you've made such an error for so long that there's no point in looking ahead. It's as if you've been in a fog, or under a spell, or in a cult, or living a life of self-deception, and you finally have a moment of clarity, and you think, my God, what have I done? I've wasted all this time. I've put myself in this position, in this this box, this iron box, and there's no way to retrieve the years I spent. Remember last time I told you about the woman I knew whose husband left her? And when she confronted him, he didn't say, well, it's time to move on, or we've grown apart. He said, I never loved you. I don't know if he was being honest in that moment or lying to hurt her or what he was doing, but for him, maybe it was this moment of reckoning, 20 years of marriage based on a lack of love, a self-deception. And for her, it became the same thing. You never loved me. We were living a lie. Vanya is about a moment like that. Years go into this moment. There's the the moment I'm talking about is the one we heard we heard part of it at the start of the show. I'll tell you what builds up to that moment. But you should know that when you're watching the play, we don't know all this at the beginning. All we see is that Vanya is crabby. He's carping about his brother-in-law. 
There's a lot we don't know about why he's so irritated. Then it all starts to come out, and then it all does come out in that scene, which is longer than the excerpt that I played. And I really, because I want you all to watch the play, if you can, and I don't want to spoil it, I won't tell you what happens after that outburst. Things progress and resolve, and it's beautiful in the Chekhovian way. But I'm going to tell you about the build-up to that initial explosion, because I find that beautiful, too. The agony before the ecstasy, if that's, if you can call it ecstasy, the tapering off, the peace, the uneasy peace, the trembling, the quiver at the end. That's a little abstract, isn't it? If you've seen the play, you know what I mean. But if you haven't, you'll have it to look forward to. Think of think of me, after you've watched it, think of me trying to describe the ending without spoiling it. The quiver. That's as good as I can do. The post-explosion quivering. Okay, who is Vanya? One of the things I love about these plays, we saw this in The Seagull as well, is that we have multiple generations in the same room in our play. It's one thing to have eight characters who are all friends, all in their early 20s, let's say. And you have one guy who's smart and one guy who's strong and one woman who's beautiful and another woman who's, I don't know, a scientist. It's another thing to have characters who are 20 and 40 and 60 all under one roof. Not just because they have a different perspective on life, but because They respond to each other in that way that people of different generations respond to one another. They affect each other that way. I have no doubt that the woman I told you about earlier, the one I mentioned at the lake house, who said that time and money were important to her, I have no doubt that she was responding in some ways to being the 50-year-old living at the lake for a week with a house full of 20-somethings. Right? You know the role. She's the host, in a way. She might arrange for the groceries. She might give advice to people for where they should go visit. She might go to bed early. She has a car people will ask to borrow. She'll participate in some activities, but not others. But much of her time will be spent watching these beautiful young people frolicking around, sailing, water skiing, jet skiing, swimming. Her pleasures are simpler and less active. A nice nap, a good dinner a sunset. So, in Vanya, we are again at a country estate, as we were in the Seagull, and again we have a group of people who are staying there, thrown together, multiple generations. And once again, we have multiple triangles as the characters love each other, usually the wrong person. But let's just look at the play from Vanya's perspective, mostly, and fill in the others as they come up. Vanya is in his mid to late 40s. He has spent his life on the estate working, managing it, producing an income from it. The estate belonged to his beautiful sister and her husband, although years ago his sister died, and now it basically belongs to her husband, a famous professor, a successful writer, an intellectual who's older now. He's gotten remarried to a younger woman, another great beauty, as Vanya's sister had been, a younger woman, beautiful, and Vanya hates this whole setup. He resents the professor. He's jealous, but mostly the professor stands as a symbol of the life that Vanya has wasted on this estate. He he himself is drawn to the beauty of the professor's wife, 
Yelena is her name. Yelena is beautiful and Vanya sees her and thinks, I'm getting old and she's beautiful. I'm not young anymore. Why is she with him? Why is she with him? Because he also has realized or has decided that he doesn't respect the old scholar's writings anymore. He thinks they're drivel. Oh, here's another thing. His mother, he and his mother lives on the estate too, and she dotes on the professor, her son-in-law. And the one other person who helps Vanya is his niece, Sonia, the professor's daughter, who is basically ignored by the professor. So, because the professor is confident, he is supremely confident. This is what gets Vanya. This is what gets under his skin. I've seen professors like this and politicians and doctors and wealthy people. Men, I suppose there are women who do this too. I'm sure there are celebrities who would fall into this category. But the examples I'm thinking of from my life are all men. The sort of man who assumes that others will be jealous of his success. Who walks through life, just breezes through, assuming that others are there to take care of him that others will want to be around him, that they'll all hang on his every word and laugh at his jokes and defer to him. He thinks that what he does is so fascinating and important, and he thinks it will make everything, everyone around him that they can hang their lives on his success, that being in his ambit, his reflected glory will be the most that they can ever hope for. Do you know people like this who think they're that special? It's horrible to be around them. And when you see people who bend to their will like that, it's horrible It's horrible to be around those people too. I can't stand it. Anyway, and neither can Vanya. He himself did that for years. He was excited by the professor's publications and he read them all eagerly, and he was proud of them, and he was proud of managing the professor's affairs, of being close to greatness, his brother-in-law in those years. And now that's gone. And look at who Vanya has around him. Look at the four women most important in his life. First, his sister, his beautiful sister, his dear departed sister. He misses her. She lived in this guy's shadow. Now the guy has remarried. The professor is remarried. He doesn't do her memory justice. He's too egotistical to really care about her. I'm sort of adding that to the play, but I think it's justified. I think it bothers Vanya that his sister lived her life with this guy, who Vanya now thinks of as a fraud, and she's gone. He doesn't have her anymore, and this guy just continues on his successful path. He's not grieving. He just gets remarried to another woman, young beautiful woman. So that's the first woman in Vanya's life, the memory of his sister. Then there's his own mother who still dotes on the guy. She cares about the professor. She takes his side against Vanya, her own son. She values her proximity to him. She worries about him. She assumes he knows best. She's motherly toward him in a way. She's not motherly with Vanya. Very frustrating for Vanya. All this is just ratcheting up the pressure, right? Then there's the unappreciated daughter, Vanya's niece, 
who's treated by her own father as poorly as Vanya is. The professor just assumes that good things will happen to him, that everyone works for him because they want to, that things will work out. He can kind of wash his hands of all of it. He could just say, oh, I don't know anything about this, but yet he's taking the money from the estate. He's, he's living the benefits of their labor. He doesn't care that his daughter and Vanya are making his life work for him by slaving away on his behalf. Vanya appreciates her, though, and I think she reminds him of how much the professor takes him for granted, too. In other words, if the professor takes his own daughter for granted, he'll take his ex-brother-in-law for granted, too, and Vanya is finally seeing that clearly. And finally, there's the fourth woman, the great beauty, Yelena, sometimes translated as Helen, the great younger woman who has replaced Vanya's sister, who doesn't work, who remains faithful to the professor, even though she probably doesn't really love him. She probably wishes she married a younger man. She probably wishes that there was more love in the relationship, and she's beautiful. It's hard to underestimate how important her beauty is to this play, because beauty, youthful beauty, has a way of throwing everything off. Have you seen that in your life? It's really fascinating. I'm sure you've seen it. I'm sure you've thought about it. Maybe you are a beautiful person. And maybe this is, maybe you've seen it from that side of things. Or maybe you just know someone who's a great beauty. Very beautiful women, especially when they're young. (sighs) Men lose their minds. Women might be jealous, but the beautiful woman, beautiful women are aware that they're fortunate, but they also have regrets. Sometimes don't they? It's like celebrity or wealth. You'd take wealth over poverty. Who wouldn't? Of course you would. You have to. That doesn't mean wealth won't have its downside. And celebrity too. And even beauty. It can distort the motives and the actions of the people around you, for one thing. You can be resented just for being beautiful. You can be feared in odd ways. You can also end up, as Yelena does, in a marriage where you don't have to work. You don't have to lift a finger. You can just exist without ever working at all or taking any responsibility. But is that going to make you happy? Maybe. Maybe not. Time and money, people. Time and money. Yelena has enough money and she has all the time in the world. She got those things. But what did she sacrifice to get them? And do those things make her happy? Were they worth the sacrifice? We haven't mentioned the other main character, the doctor who falls in love with Yelena. So does Vanya, by the way. The doctor hurts in particular because the decent, hardworking, kind-hearted, but plain Sonia, the daughter of the professor, Vanya's niece, the stepdaughter of Yelena, loves the doctor. She thinks maybe, just maybe, they could find happiness together. But the doctor doesn't care for her, has no feelings for her. And it's hard not to think, It's at least in part, because whenever he sees her, whenever he sees kind-hearted Sonia, it's in the proximity of the dazzling Yelena. Yelena didn't ask for this. What does she gain from that? She doesn't love the doctor. She gets flattery, sure, but how much flattery does one need? She would sacrifice some flattery to have Sonia be happy and to not resent her. Instead, 
Elena has to live in this house where all the men are in love with her, except she's making them angry because she won't leave her husband for them. And Sonia is destined to resent her for being the one whom the doctor loves. Because why? Because of her beauty. That's it. But all of this, while dramatic and fascinating, is just part of the ratcheting up. If anything, it helps us to see that the professor is the one who just gets things the way he wants them. The doctor works so hard he can barely stand, and he's been thinking about what that means. Do you know doctors who don't care for people anymore in their real lives, in their home life? We think of them as saints, right? As healers, and they are. There's nothing better than a doctor who takes care of people, and yet sometimes the experience of dealing with humans in that way, the sick people they take care of, and the people they have to watch die, the ones they're trying to help but can't, it can make them, it can change them. It can make them somewhat callous sometimes. They can be people who don't live in their families very well, who have a hard time relating to the people closest to them. They have a hard time loving their children in the same way. Maybe they're worried about death and they cope by putting up a hard shell. Or maybe they're so worried about their patients who are sick, they don't recognize that their own children have needs too, even when they're healthy. Maybe their children are unhappy, for example. And the doctors say, do you know what unhappiness is? Look how healthy you are. I deal with people who have a real reason to be unhappy. Maybe that kind of thing. Anyway, the doctor in the play has a great passion for planting trees and taking care of the countryside and looking toward the future. That's his response to a kind of midlife crisis he's having. He's also having one, along with Vanya. He falls in love with the beautiful Yelena, and he sort of sets his career to the side. He dismisses its importance. You get the sense he's wondering whether it was the most important thing he could have done with his life. Remember that Chekhov himself was a doctor, of course. So there's our doctor in a kind of quiet agony. He can't have what he wants the one guy who has it all is the professor. And Vanya says, wow, I have worked all this time for him, for him and his glory. And why? Why did I do it? I no longer respect him. I gave my life for him. Vanya is simmering. And then the professor comes out and announces that he's done some thinking about the estate. He has a plan. The estate makes about 2% profit. He could sell the estate, invest it in bonds, and earn 4 to 5%. And Vanya goes insane. <laughs> he loses it. First of all, that 2% that the professor is just sort of dismissing as insufficient, that's from the sweat of his brow. That's Vanya who's earning that 2%, Vanya and Sonia. 2% that he's mostly sent to the professor, made the professor wealthy, let him live in the kind of comfort he wants, the lifestyle he wants. He's enabled the professor's scholarship with that money, time and money once again. Vanya's time spent working for the professor, freeing up the professor's time to be a success, to do what he wants with the money that Vanya has earned for him. Vanya at one point says, all these years, Sonia and I have worked, you paid me the same amount. We heard that at the beginning, 500 rubles. It was nothing. You never raised it in 25 years. 
And the professor says, I don't know anything about business. You could have raised it yourself. You could have taken more if you thought you deserved it. And Vanya said, oh, so I'd be a thief. You'd respect me more if I stole? Hmm. This is so simple, but so powerful. Look at that exchange. Vanya has spent years, decades, living a life for the professor. His value, as he told himself all those years, was in the quiet dignity, the sacrifice, the self-abnegation. And now he's looking at his life and saying, why didn't I live for me? And the professor breezily says, you could have taken more money, why not? You know I don't care, it means nothing to me. Ah, which makes things worse. It's worse. It's like when people, have you ever done this, sacrificed for someone else? And then you get done doing it and you realize that it didn't matter. The person you sacrificed for doesn't even care. They don't say, well, thank you. This means everything for me. They just look at you and say, well, you didn't have to do that. Why were you so stupid? You can't think it mattered to me at all. It's such a powerful moment. I've had a few moments like this where I've given something up, sometimes for a long time, and the person I've given it up for barely notices. It's why Chekhov is so good. It's that kind of insight into the human heart to capture that feeling, that relationship between the one who acts superior and the one who agreed to think of him that way and now no longer does. What do you do in such a case? How do you find your dignity? The same dynamic continues. Vanya is really going crazy at this proposal that the professor is going to just sell the estate and make more money from these bonds. The professor says, I might be able to buy a small house in Finland with the proceeds. And Vanya says, proceeds? What proceeds? Whose proceeds? And it comes out then that his father, Vanya's father, bought the estate originally, that it was his sister's not the professor's. Vanya, in fact, gave up his inheritance in order for his father to buy it. He willingly gave it up because he loved his sister so much. And so the estate belonged to his sister, not the professor, and so now it belongs to Sonia. This whole time, the professor, for 25 years, has been profiting from it, not because he's the owner, but just because it's sort of, he's sort of there benefiting from it as if he's the owner. That's just the kind of thing that he just gets in his life. He just assumes that's the way it should be, and others just defer to that assumption. Now, once again, that's the genius of Chekhov. What you might expect here, you might expect the professor to be set up as the bad guy, right? That maybe he'll say to Vanya, I don't care that your father bought it, it's mine. I don't care that it was your sister's, it's mine. I don't care that you worked on it for years. It's mine, or I'll take you to court. I can sue and get this estate. Or, in a moral sense, he might argue, my darling wife who died would want me to have it, or make some other reason why he, in his importance, because of his status as the sort of patriarch or the intellectual, the celebrity, with some reason why he should just be able to sell it and take the proceeds. And then we'd have Vanya, who now has a fight on his hands, legal fight, struggle for power. Chekhov is so brilliant. Here's the type of, maybe I should say, here's the type of brilliance 
that Chekhov has. That would be one way to take the play, right? One direction. But the professor doesn't do that. He just says, of course it's Sonia's. Of course, I know it doesn't belong to me. I wouldn't dream of selling this without her consent. I'm just trying to do what's best here. Isn't 4 or 5% better than 2%? But hey, if I'm wrong, then so be it. I'm just throwing out a proposal. It's just a plan. You know I'm not a business person. Why are you so angry? <laughs> That's how the professor responds to Vanya. That's why I love Chekhov so much. It's getting this kind of thing so right. Because if you've ever tried to argue with someone, if you've ever wished that someone would change or that you could finally win, that you could be right, that you could defeat them, that you could win and you could get to watch them lose, you know how difficult it is, how frustrating when you can't get any traction, when the other person is not even engaged in your argument. They rise above. They're not even going to dignify you with an angry defense. They just float above. They concede. They just float above. This doesn't even really matter to them. So why are you getting so angry? Why are you being so unreasonable? That's the powder keg that Vanya is sitting upon. 25 years of this, and that's what sets him off. The powder keg is that the professor is planning to sell the estate, but it's not just that. It's that his idea for selling it has embedded within it so many assumptions, so much disregard for others. Vanya says, what would happen to me if you sold this place? Where would I live? But it's not just the idea that Vanya won't have a place to live, and that's scary or unfair. That's not all that's at stake here. It's not this feeling of, well, this is mine, and you're willing to kick me out because you don't care, and you're selfish, and you're trying to big-time me. It's deeper than that. It turns out, as I said, Vanya renounced his inheritance in order to make sure that his sister could have the estate because he loved her. So this all is unjust. That's one direction the play could go, but it's even more than that. The professor keeps up his ways in the mammoth adaptation. He says, I don't know what it is you think you want, which is so perfect. It's not, oh, Vanya, what do you want? Which would be kind and, and generous, right? A moment of selflessness. Vanya, what do you want? But that's not the professor. And it's not him saying, I don't know what you want, which would be, acknowledging a kind of shortcoming on the professor's part. It's, I don't know what you think you want. I don't know what you're trying to accomplish. As if Vanya is the crazy one for even taking all this so seriously. It's a little pat on the head. It's saying, I see you're so angry. Why are you so angry? Your anger makes no sense to me. Clearly, you're irrational and you're also insignificant. Your irrationality justifies my treatment of you as being insignificant. You're nothing. I'll never respect you. I don't think you even deserve it. You lash out for no reason. You make no sense to me. I don't know what you think you want. You don't even want things properly. You're so confused. And for Vanya, this is it. It's the last straw. His anger is more than just resentment about his sister and Yelena and his mother and the time he's spent and the money he's earned for the professor, but not himself. And it's more than just this proposal of selling the estate. It's the deepest crushing feeling 
of a life that's been wasted, not because someone has defeated you, but because their attitude led you to defeat yourself. And they won't even give you the satisfaction of appreciating that or even showing up for the argument about it. It's saying, this is how I've spent my life, serving you. And you think so little of what I've done that you don't even give me a moment's thought. It's, you have taken me for granted all these years. It's a little more than that too. It's, you have taken everything in life for granted and I was a fool for letting that happen and it's too late to get the past back but I'll never be happy because of the way I wasted my own past. And anyway, it's not going to change going forward either. You are going to be here and doing these things and assuming what you're assuming and living life in your confident way while the people I love adore you or live as if they adore you They've bent themselves to your will, just as I did, and you don't care. Anya says, I could have been a Schopenhauer, a Dostoevsky. But what gets him is not that he really thinks that. His, his regret isn't specific about something he gave up. It's vague. Except in a way, it's not vague. Because it's about his life, and it's about two important things in his life. Time and money. He's devastated that he's wasted his life for someone else, and he's done it willingly. He just let it happen, and he made the professor wealthy, gave him the kind of life the professor wanted with time and money. And the professor just says, you want the estate? Take it. It means nothing to me. It's infuriating. And Vanya says, what do I do with all this unhappiness? Where do I take it? What do I do with it? He looks to his mother and his mother says, Just listen to the professor. Oh. We could talk about the other characters too. And their philosophies of life and their happiness and unhappiness. And Sonia gets a speech. She delivers a speech at the end. That's a whole other perspective. But it's Vanya and his explosion that I love, that feels like Chekhov looking straight into my eyes and seeing me and my life and my heart and my soul. He sees it. And he sees all the layers above it, all the masks and cloaks and scar tissue and means of deception, all those ways of hiding the truth from others or the hiding the truth from the world, or myself. And he sees what's under all that. And then he writes, and he lays it all bare. Mm, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature, Uncle Vanya. Pretty amazing. What a great play. The people who've been in this play are like a who's who of the 20th century of great actors, starting with Stanislavski, who played the doctor, and running through Derek Jacobi and Michael Gambon and 
William Hurt and George C. Scott and Peter O'Toole and Ian McKellen. Who else? Paul Schofield, Michael Redgrave, amazing actors. Laurence Olivier, did I mention him? <laughs> you know, that guy. The actresses started with Olga Nipper, who became Chekhov's wife. She played Yelena, the great beauty. Don't miss Julianne Moore in the role in Vanya on 42nd Street, which has Wallace Shawn as Vanya in that version, which is pretty fun. I am a fan. We are part of Lit Hub Radio and the Podglomerate. Find out more at www.thepodglomerate.com. Life is good, people. Even when you look back and see that it was lousy, and even when you look ahead and see that it will be lousy, even when you're doing both of those things, it's still good. It's still good. I believe that. It makes no sense when I put it that way. (laughs) You're standing looking back and it's lousy. Look ahead and it's lousy. But not everything in the world needs to make sense, does it? Sometimes it doesn't make sense. And that's just fine, too. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Universe.